Welcome to Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. In part two of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview, William Zelmer talks with Curtis L. Triplett, Susan Cornell, and Joshua J. Newmiller. They discuss future treatment options for type 2 diabetes and the roles for pharmacists in individualizing insulin therapy. This installment is produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by Novo Nordisk Incorporated. This is William Zelmer for the ASHP program, Engaging the Experts. I'm speaking with Curtis Triplett, Susan Cornell, and Joshua Newmiller, who presented a session on treating type 2 diabetes at the 2016 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting. Dr. Triplett is Associate Director in the Diabetes Research Center at the Texas Diabetes Institute and Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine in the Division of Diabetes at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Dr. Cornell is Associate Director of Experiential Education and Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Midwestern University, Chicago College of Pharmacy in Downers Grove, Illinois. Dr. Newmiller is Vice Chair and Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacotherapy at Washington State University College of Pharmacy in Spokane. Josh, could you summarize for us how the biopharmaceutical industry has responded to the clinical challenges of managing type 2 diabetes with insulin? Yeah, thanks, Bill. And as Curtis just said, you know, insulin therapy has changed dramatically over the years. And, uh, you know, certainly even in the last couple of years, there have been uh, some significant changes and improvements that can really help manage some of these barriers, uh, such as, um, you know, uh, uh, regimen complexity. So people who had to take insulin at, at more frequent injection intervals, you know, now we have our ultra long acting basal insulins that can help with people getting a full 24 hours out of a single injection. You know, we're really fortunate to have a growing number of options to really better meet the needs of our patients. Just a few, you know, our improved devices, certainly our concentrated insulin. So now we have some concentrated insulin, like our U300 insulin glargine, our U200 uh, insulin degladec that allow for smaller volume injection in people who take uh, large doses of insulin. As I mentioned, we have our true basal insulins, such as insulin degladec and U300 insulin glargine that provide over 24 hours of basal coverage. Some uh, additional great improvements. So we've had our U500 that has been on the market for quite some time, but now to kind of help with some of our safety issues that have been a problem in the past with U500, now we have U500 insulin pens and U500 specific insulin syringes that will have some implications in terms of improving the safety associated with the use of this specific insulin product. So really quite a lot of changes over the last couple of years, and really all of these advances have helped to address some of the clinical challenges we've already been talking about that are facing every day in working with people with type 2 diabetes. You know, an additional advancement that I'm excited about that may change a lot of how we approach insulin use in patients is the introduction of fixed-dose combination products that will contain both basal insulin with a GLP-1 receptor agonist so we can, in a single injection, and target both fasting uh, blood sugar as well as postprandial or after-meal glucose spikes. And I think many patients can benefit from this combination, and now we will have a couple of these products available 
again, that can be given as a single injection with the potential to help uh, with adherence since these can be given in a single injection as well as lessen the complexity of their medication regimens that we ask these patients to maintain. Curtis, I wonder if you could take this maybe a step or so further in commenting briefly on the role of each of the newer insulin products in managing type 2 diabetes. Sure, Bill, it would be my pleasure. As Josh was speaking about each of the different products, one of the things to think about is what does it mean for my patient? What would be the role? And really, when you break it down, you have to ask yourself the following questions. It's the questions that we ask about any drug. Is it going to be more efficacious? Are there anything contraindication-wise why I would use one product over another? And then ease of use and, of course, side effects. And with insulin, when we talk about side effects, we're talking about hypoglycemia for the most part. So efficacy-wise, the newer agents in general have shown to be equally effective to not NPH, but to what we would call insulin glargine, which is the most prescribed basal insulin right now. When you're looking for efficacy, the newer ones are just as efficacious, which is reassuring in many ways. Sure, we'd love it to be more efficacious, but bottom line is at least it's as efficacious as the gold standard on the market right now, which is insulin glargine. If you look at the different products, such as Deglodec, Deglodec, as he has mentioned, is an ultra-long-acting basal. What we see is two potential advantages, one being side effects. It tends to have less nocturnal hypoglycemia, and depending on what you look at, usually a little less hypoglycemia in general. And depending on the study, no more severe hypoglycemia, and maybe even slightly less depending on the population you look at. And we can almost say exactly the same thing for the concentrated insulin glargine U300, that, again, efficacious-wise, same as insulin glargine U100, but that it actually has a slightly less nocturnal hypoglycemia uh, and about the same risk of severe hypoglycemia. And so the real question is, how do you use that forward for your patient? And the answer is, is that these long-acting basal insulins have really allowed us to use true basal insulin. We always wanted insulins that lasted 24 hours or more. Not everyone got that in insulin Detimer especially or in insulin glargine U100. So we're able to kind of look at that, and the, the common term is called intrapatient variability. And what you see is about 20% of patients that are on glargine or, or probably even more on MPH have this variability that allows them or doesn't allow them, but uh, unfortunately allows them to have more hypoglycemia or more variability between each injection. And that's where I would target these new basal insulins. I would target them to patients who, any patient is a, is a candidate if you can get it, but the patients who would really benefit would be those that are having problems, specifically hypoglycemia because there's no difference in contraindications, to move them to the newer insulins which seem to have less risk of hypoglycemia. Josh, is there anything you would add? Definitely agree with everything Curtis had to say. I, I guess, uh, you know, in my practice, when I'm going out into people's homes and looking through their glucose logs and, and, you know, a lot of these people are on some of our older agents, insulin glargine, insulin detamir. You know, if they're doing great, as Curtis said, we're not really looking at a robust difference in efficacy. You know, if they're doing good, I'm not going to switch them to these newer agents or recommend to do so. But for those people that are having nighttime hypoglycemia, as Curtis very nicely outlined, I might think about making this recommendation. And since we do get full 24 hours or more out of these agents, if I, if I do have patients that maybe they're having to dose 
test uh, their basal insulin twice daily because they don't get a full 24 hours out of it. If that's problematic in their lifestyle and managing their insulin regimen and that's presenting as a barrier, that's another group of people I might think about maybe making a switch to some of these ultra-long-acting basals really to kind of improve the simplicity of their regimen, if you will. Sue, uh, I'd like to ask you, could you comment on the potential for uh, uh, medication error issues arising from perhaps the new pen delivery systems or just in general the, the larger array of insulin products that are out there today? Any thoughts on this for us? Sure. Once you start to get more um, products in the pipeline, especially within the same class, oftentimes that can bring confusion. And insulin is obviously very different than the other 12 classes of drugs that are out there to treat diabetes. But when you look at it, you know, insulin, we have basal, we have bolus, and interchangeability is not always possible. And so I think this is where, again, introducing new products, there's more to choose from. As the practitioner, you know, they have to really know their product and be able to convey that information to the patients. Because I think sometimes two patients confuse their insulins very often. Uh, just for an example, uh, I had a patient who was taking insulin glargine and due to insurance reasons couldn't afford it anymore, ended up buying over-the-counter insulin, which is NPH, received NPH, and of course always took the glargine in the evening, so now he's taking the NPH in the evening. But then his prescriber actually switched him to 70-30 insulin. And this patient continued to take the 70-30 mix insulin at bedtime. And of course, that led to you know nocturnal hypoglycemia, not only from the NPH, but mostly from the regular component that was in there. So again, you know, we have to make sure we're conveying the message to the patient about education, because if there's a change in their insulin, we need to know when they're taking it, what time is their food, when do they eat. We need to know a lot about their lifestyle. And you know, Josh's comments about going into the patient's home and getting to really see and feel what the patient is experiencing is a huge impact on how we can better manage these, these people. The other interesting part, too, is obviously just from um, inpatient to outpatient. Oftentimes, many hospitals will have formularies that force them into interchangeability where it might not be possible with these insulins, especially with the basals. So I think that's something, too, that opens a whole new problem for medication errors. Curtis, is there anything you would add? I would say that I think this has been out there for a while, but one pen, one patient kind of thing is, is huge. And I and I 100% agree with her that the these transitions of care oftentimes are just horrible for our patients. So oftentimes when they're admitted to the hospital, everything stopped, they're putting on insulin. Then what happens is clinicians on the inpatient side, the hospitalists are saying, well, you know, I I don't want to transition them back to orals. So they're discharged on insulin, but then they're expected as they get better and better, which is this transition of care from the patient to outpatient, many times they're getting better acutely. Then the amount of insulin we have them on is too much. They start to have hypo, but they don't have anyone to call. So they have to call their primary, and the primary says, yeah, I'll see you next Tuesday. And they're like, well, I'm having hypoglycemia now. Well, I didn't put you on insulin, so I don't know, you know, go talk to the person who put you on insulin. It's this uh, transition of care, which everyone is working on right now. And especially with diabetes, this is the biggest problem. Um, less so from uh, outpatient to inpatient, but much, much sore from inpatient to outpatient because of the, the common use of keeping them on insulins 
and not transitioning them back to oral agents. I'm not saying it's inappropriate for hospitalists. Uh, oftentimes they're not admitted for diabetes per se, and that's one of the things. They're in for pneumonia, so I make sure that they get their antibiotic prescription, but you know, I don't really feel that compelled to put them back onto orals. I figure they'll see their primary soon, and as you know, this is one of the reasons why Medicare has started to pick out some particular uh, disease states for these transitions of care because it's costing all of us a lot of money. Josh, given your experience, anything you would add with respect to the medication error issue? Yeah, I really like everything Sue and Curtis had to say, and and, and I, you know, when Sue mentioned the the pens and confusing the insulins, I, that's something I see quite often, and often it is related to this transitional care issue. You know, these folks uh, go into the hospital, they may place them on insulin, or maybe they change their insulin due to formulary issues, and where people run into a lot of problems is if they're then discharged on that insulin they were changed to inpatient, and then I'll go and see these folks in their homes after the case, and they have, you know, two or three different insulin products in the fridge, and you know, in some instances, maybe they're taking them all, maybe they're taking the wrong one, and often the big issue is uh, nobody involved in their care really has a hundred percent accurate representation of what they're what they're doing in the home environment. It's really no one in particular's fault in most of these cases. It's just uh, everybody trying to do the best thing for the patient, but then they're kind of stuck with not having all the information that they need to adequately manage their products and their diabetes. And, you know, with the insulin pen piece, very often I also see people confuse their, maybe they're on a, a long-acting insulin pen and a rapid-acting insulin pen, and, and they think one is the other and vice versa, and they're taking their mealtime insulin at bedtime and their basal insulin three times a day. So really working with these people, education, reinforcement, very important to make sure they're staying safe and using these products uh, as they should. Curtis, let me ask you, uh, what comments do you have about the cost implications of using the newer concentrated insulin products? I think we can all agree that cost is a contentious issue in this particular space. One of the reasons has it has really nothing to do with these newer agents. It, it really has to do with the fact that we're, we're moving into a different realm here with the insulins. And we're starting to get some insulins that you would call follow-on insulins. And these follow-on insulins, of course, are going to be taking market share away from some of the tried-and-true peptide insulins, such as insulin glargine. What we have seen over the last four or five years is that the cost of insulin has about doubled to tripled. I don't believe you're going to see that these new insulins, whether they be concentrated or non-concentrated, are going to be less costly. Several different components of that. One is that insulin does take quite a bit to make it. It certainly is not the same as a, a generic oral medication where you can easily synthesize the, the product, put it into a little pill, and take that pill and everything's fine. Uh, everyone has their proprietary way of making insulin, and that proprietary way does not have to be shared. And so what happens is that everyone who makes insulin, it's going to be slightly different, but the end product, as long as it can show that it's lowering glucose the same, has the same as the, as the other product, it's probably going to get approved. But the cost part of it is really the problem in the fact if you go to a certain chain, you can get uh, NPH and regular for $25 a bottle. But most of these newer insulins are going to cost upwards of about $300 per bottle cash. 
Now, the real problem with cost goes in that there's this whole black box hidden behind that cash price that only people in research like myself, this is a little bit of a joke, pay that price because we buy it cash. When uh, pharmacy benefit managers buy it, they buy it at a rebated price. And that rebate is very, very tightly controlled and kind of a hidden cost. So when we say insulin costs have gone up, that's absolutely true for us typical consumers. That cost is given to us through the pharmaceutical company. Some of that is through the pharmacy benefit managers, which, you know, are many, and then on to the consumer who's end up paying a little bit more too. So this cost issue is something that's very contentious right now in the diabetes community, and we would really like to see that all players in that chain work together to come to some kind of understanding about curtailing costs. And we've already started to see that, but there's no real reason for the cost of uh, insulin to have doubled or tripled other than there's going to be competition on the market. So again, very contentious. This is the way I see it currently. Sure. Josh, uh, let me ask you for a brief comment on this point. We've been talking here, of course, about uh, injectable insulin products. Uh, there's also an orally inhaled insulin that's used in managing type 2 diabetes. Could you comment on its role uh, in, in contemporary practice? Yeah, I think it's important for us to always keep in mind, you know, we've talked about some of the barriers to insulin therapy, one of those potentially being injection, although hopefully we can use some of the strategies we talked about to minimize that barrier. But we do have an orally inhaled insulin. It's really a mealtime insulin, very rapidly absorbed after inhalation. Uh, and this technosphere insulin, it's administered by a device. It's about the size of one's thumb or thereabouts where patients can insert four, eight, or 12 unit cartridges to give a given dose of insulin with a meal. FDA approved for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. I personally haven't seen anybody with type 1 diabetes on this particular product, and I think, you know, that has a lot to do with you know, limitations that are set forth with just the unit doses that are available, 4, 8, and 12 unit. But it is a it is a product that's available, and for the few folks I've seen that are on this with type 2 diabetes, these are people who have pretty good fasting blood glucose that they're managing and you know maybe they have uh, with their dietary habits one large meal per day and really the issues they run into are having a lot of uh, after meal hyperglycemia at that given meal and in those cases their providers have given this inhaled insulin product uh, where they can take an inhalation with that meal and, and for the again those few people I've seen using this product it, it tends to work pretty well for them again very rapid absorption certainly requires a lot of education for the patient because yeah, they have to understand how to load the device and properly inhale and certainly we need to be talking to them about self-monitoring of blood glucose as they start that insulin product to keep them safe. Is something good to keep in the back of our minds that we do have a non-injectable insulin in the form of technosphere insulin uh, that we can use in, in certain patients where it might be useful. Curtis, let's look ahead a little bit. I'm curious what can you say about current clinical research or the drug product pipeline that might lead to near-term additional advances in treating type 2 diabetes? I've seen some uh, exciting things that are coming through the pipeline that most people probably are aware. One I think which is extremely exciting, of course, is what we would call the quote-unquote artificial pancreas. Of course, this means that through monitoring of glucose through usually a 
continuous glucose monitor along with a pump and using these extremely complex algorithms what happens is that we're going to probably be able to manage most type 1's and some type 2's without input from the patient. There are small parts of that already on the market. No one would say that truly an artificial pancreas is out there yet. This looks in the next five years to be extremely interesting and really revolutionary, though not a cure, certainly a, a huge advance for type 1 diabetes and type 2. As far as type 2 diabetes medications per se, uh, I think there's a couple interesting areas. One is that uh, we tend to keep moving a lot of injectable peptides orally. We've seen a lot of interest lately in moving uh, GLP-1s orally and also insulin orally. And there's a couple of companies fighting over that particular market. But GLP-1s, there is at least one product that's a, a weekly product, looks very, very good orally. And we're starting to see some insulin uh, orally as well. Insulin has been tried orally for the last 10 years. Our research department here studied one called oral hexyl insulin, which is uh, published in Diabetes Care. But they've always had some kind of a hang-up, and that hang-up has caused them not to be able to get onto the market. Uh, but currently, there's a couple of companies looking at this, and I think it will go forward. And the last target I think is very interesting is drugs that are actually looking to improve mitochondrial function for type 2. We really have a big black hole in, in uh, type 2 diabetes treatment. We talk about insulin resistance a lot, but we really don't have a clean drug for insulin resistance in type 2. We have TZDs or thiazolidine dions, pioglitazone, rosiglitazone, but most people would agree that though they are an excellent insulin sensitizer, side effects and potential outcomes scare off most patients and providers from using them. So targeting the mitochondrial function directly, which is one of the ways that TZDs work, if we can get a clean drug that does that, is going to be the next blockbuster for insulin resistance. Well, as we conclude our conversation, I'd like to ask each of you if you have any parting advice for pharmacists related to individualizing insulin therapy. Sue, let's begin with you. Thanks, Bill, um, and thank you for hosting this interview today. One of the most things that I would just like pharmacists to realize is that just because you tell a patient to do something doesn't mean they're going to do it or do it right. So we really need to have those crucial conversations with the patient to find out how are they taking their medications and what problems are they having, um, what changes have they noticed since starting the meds, so that we can identify adherence issues early on and kind of uh, intervene when necessary. And whenever there's a device, especially with insulin pens, as we've already mentioned, you know, the newer insulins out today are only available in a pen, we really need to make sure the patient is using it correctly because there are so many ways that they can use it incorrectly which will not help them to get the optimal dose. So, you know, having, as I call it, the medication checkups and making sure you're doing a device review with them on somewhat of a regular basis just to make sure everything is working accordingly. Josh, what would you add? Some great points from Sue there, and I would agree 100% that really education and reinforcement is 
crucial. You know, we really can't make any assumptions, even though we talked to somebody three months ago and they, they seem to be doing things right. It never hurts to do a double check and make sure um, something hasn't uh, waned in the in the interim. So I think that's very important. You know, earlier today, uh, Sue made a, a, another really good point about people getting frustrated if they're not making improvements uh, despite some changes they're making. So I would say, you know, if you're working with people with diabetes, really celebrate small victories. You know, if they've made an improvement in their diet, but maybe it's not showing on their blood glucose, we have to acknowledge that and encourage them to, to keep going and, and keep making progress. And then the other thing, you know, with, uh, with our insulin products, when we're titrating these, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, clinical inertia and making sure we're reevaluating and moving forward. But the other thing, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about hypoglycemia today. I guess the other thing I, I always like to keep in mind when we get these folks and their blood sugars out of control is taking a step back and realizing they didn't get there overnight so we don't have to fix it by tomorrow. So, you know, started a, started a safe dose, make sure we're interacting with those patients frequently. So start low, go slow, so we keep them safe, but make sure we still get somewhere and uh, be in constant contact with these folks. Curtis, I invite you to have the final comment on this point. Advice to pharmacists. Hey, well, thank you so much, Bill. Thanks to my other two speakers. You know, you guys are certainly experts in the field, and it's just been a pleasure. Just so that uh, we kind of stay uh, on this point of individualization, a lot of times clinicians prescribe certain medications because of the fact that they're more familiar with them. And as newer medications come onto the market, oftentimes they're not familiar. And so that has to fall back on someone and it's us to when the patient comes in with those hypoglycemic reactions to kind of talk to them about newer options available that might have less hypoglycemia. Also have to talk to them about efficacy that we just mentioned, side effects, hypoglycemia, and of course cost as well. And I just think that the two biggest barriers are starting insulin and getting them to target. So, you know, oftentimes I see that patients don't want to start it, and we've talked about clinical inertia a lot today. Very important for us to address in our patients. And the second is once we get them on insulin, many times when they come to see us, they're on 10, 15 units basal insulin, and yet their fasting sugars are still in the 200s. Uh, and so inadequate use of these drugs, I think, sometimes um, leads to some of that clinical inertia and poor outcomes despite even using the drugs. So highly encourage you to, to keep at it and, and as they would say, this is kind of the theory of treat to target. So make sure your patients are being titrated up slowly so that they don't have problems, but do treat to target. Well, thank you so much, Bill. That concludes part two of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview. If you missed part one of this interview, which focuses on barriers to optimizing the use of insulin and managing patients with type 2 diabetes, visit the activity website at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash go forward slash type 2 or access it via iTunes as a podcast. Other educational resources on this topic are also available at the activity website.